0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: As you know, this is Stop and Search on the Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by 8Cast in Association of the UK. And we're speaking to Laurie Penny. Here we go.
2: Behind you-
1: Thank you so much again for joining us. As I said, this is Laurie Penny, activist, author, journalist. There's so much within her book, The Bitch Doctrine, that was resonating with me that this made sense. There's a lot of overlaps within drug policy within this because we cover gender, we cover diversity, we cover historical movements, social movements. So there's a lot we can cover within this. So we've got this overlapping conversation and I can't thank Laurie enough for it because you've written on drug policy before but there's so much more to it than that so in a minute we're going to play you that conversation which I'm just thrilled about because I've just listened to it back to edit it and this is fairly unedited speaking of which there is a little bit of a mic glitch at the start it sounds like I've got a tremolo on my voice it's just a little bit of a a glitch within the mic it's only a few seconds so just bear with it other than that it's pretty unedited as you can hear from some of it, because it's a bit rough and ready towards the end, and yeah, we have a bit of a laugh. I need to give you a quick shout-out on our social media, which is at ukleap.org on Facebook, ukleap at... No, at, that's the wrong way around, in it? At ukleap on Twitter, at ukleap on Instagram, and our website, ukleap.org. And one last, or actually two last things. If you can please can you order our chairman's new book which is Drug Wars by Neil Woods it's going to be scrolling underneath as I'm speaking right now it's going to be on acast.com slash stop and search but just go to Amazon and it'll be there to pre-order or if you're listening to this past June then go to a bookshop and buy it if you can that'd be brilliant thank you so much his last book Good Cop Bad War was just, well, it was just off the charts brilliant so this one is going to be fantastic too so please go and support that that's fantastic if you do and one last thing, the next time we speak to you on this podcast, we're going to know if we won any British British Podcast Awards or not. Because currently, as I'm speaking to you, we're up for two. We're in the Best Current Affairs and Smartest Podcast category. So yeah, we got a, an award ceremony to go to, and it's quite nerve wracking. Um, but we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it without you, the listeners. You've genuinely made this podcast what it is. You've embraced it. You've run with it, and we can't thank you enough. So. It's just heartening to know that our conversation is getting out there and being used. So thank you so much for what you do. Please carry on sharing it and speaking about us and doing all the things you can. So on that note, let's get on with this. This is Stop and Search and we're talking to Laurie Penny. Here we go. Which is amazing. I've read it. I've read it actually kind of twice because I read it first and then I made notes. And it is amazing. So if you're into activism, if you're into politics, if you're into... Any social movement whatsoever—it's covered in there. So please do read that. And while we're at it, give a round of applause to Laurie Penny. Yeah, go for it. Hi. Hi.
2: Hello, everyone.
1: So the book, the Bitch doctrine. Yeah. I mean, how's it done?
2: I, I think it's gone all right, basically. Um, it's gone all right enough that I'm allowed to write another book, which is what you want, really, so great. Yeah. Oh, good. Gl-
1: oh. Yeah, give a round of applause, oh, I think. you guys. Thanks. Because you did our Bosses, the Scroobius Pip's podcast, yeah. didn't you? I mean, annoyingly, because I thought I was going to have you on this one first before Pip did it, and... and And imagine you got quite a good reaction to Pit's podcast because it's just so well spread out there.
2: Well, basically, sort of kept emailing him for about two years until he let me on his podcast because I'm a massive, massive Scroobius Pip fan and also uh, my ex girlfriend who I'm very, very fond of, um, is uh, American but she loves Scroobius Pip so much and that's like her thing, her English thing that she knows. And when I was just like, Oh, there's been a call out for female guests on the podcast, I'm gonna go on it and then I'm gonna I'm gonna like say hi to Magpie on the podcast. That was partly why I did it.
1: But <laughs> straight away that's a great transition to what I was going to ask, it's, it's quite important, isn't it, to have gender diversity in major appearances and it's something that we try and do here is to always have a female voice within it so that we're not completely dominated. Is that sounding right, Tristan?
2: No. Are but the you, you mic to, switch? Yeah, You'll have to
1: forgive me if there's a bit of glitchy. Is it,
2: is it happening on mine as well? No, it's not. How
1: about the yellow one? Yellow's alright. So yellow. Yeah. It's always the blue one, isn't it? So we'll, we'll cut that, don't worry. And we'll have, we'll have to share microphones when we get the full panel up here. That's all right. Right, so I've learnt to give an appropriate pause so that I, when I come to edit this, I can cut back in. So It's an important point, isn't it, like, See, now you've laughed, and now I'm not going to...
2: Nobody will know why you're laughing. Don't laugh.
1: Deadly silent. Laugh.
2: This is very serious.
1: Ready? One, two... I see the anticipation now, look, there's just... Neve's already laughing. Look, you're not going to be a guest now, (laughs) Neve. I find it's important, don't you... That's just too contrived now, isn't it? I sound like some sort of weird American talk show host. (laughs) I find it's important to have gender diversity. We try and do it on this podcast to make sure that there's always a female voice, that we're not completely dominated by the male masculine point of view do you think we're getting better at that in the media that we're actually getting more diversity
2: yeah um it's one of those things that the media is having to practice until it becomes habitual so um really even a few years ago when i started out doing this kind of thing it was very very common to have panels of you know, only white people and only men or just to be only to be the only woman on a panel and now it's much much more diverse and I think it's just people are getting into the rhythm of it. People are realising that this is not a flash in the pan. Diversity is not a a trend. It's something that actually also happens to make media better. Because when you have diverse voices, you don't have people coming from all the same point of view, the same kind of background. It actually makes it a lot more interesting and you get a lot more different kinds of expertise. So there's lots and lots of reasons to to have diverse media, apart from the fact that, you know, you should... Um yeah I'm I'm hoping that this will get easier and easier for people and it'll just be it will become second nature for editors and producers and showrunners just to say oh you know we we just automatically will ask as many women as many people of color as we do white guys so yeah
1: yeah at some point it'd be nice if it was just a non issue where the representation was there because I mean we advertise this event online, and we got the usual response on Twitter of people going, "Oh, when are you going to do the men event? And, and when are you going the to get more?" The men event. Exactly. It's like
2: hang on, what? What?
1: Exactly. That was our point. Exactly. The Twitter backlash we got, which it nominal, it was small, but it was still there. It was kind of expected. So
2: hang on, what? What were people? What was the problem that people were having? Can you like?
1: I don't know. That, I mean, I don't
2: know either. Honestly, part of the time, but it's just the the idea that by well. I mean we can cut this because I'm, I'm thinking out loud but people do interpret a push for diversity as pushing out the voices of men the voices of white people and you know the line goes around the the line going around I, it's been credited to me but I'm pretty sure I didn't come up with it first however I'm not sure who did so if anybody knows let me know but the line is um, when you've been used to when you've been used to equ- sorry when you've been used to privilege equality feels like prejudice so calling for some calling for people to be more be better represented sorry calling for better representation of all different kinds of people feels like an attack if you're one of the people who has always been represented it's like saying oh um, are people like me not good enough anymore well no that's not what you're saying it's just saying that maybe you shouldn't be dominating every single conversation and yet actually that does mean that there will be fewer spaces for white people and spaces for men and spaces for straight people and and that might mean that people who are any or all of those things have to work harder to to have that space but we also live in a massively expanding media universe where there are more and more spaces for everyone all the time so I don't see it being that much of a problem.
1: And there's a line in your book that's brilliant of you're very aware that, I mean, you do a lot of work in, in trans issues, LGBTQ, yes. um, and you've said yourself that you you are very conscious of being a good ally, you, mm. and you know that you're going to mess up. And that's something I'm conscious of, that in, this, in the subject of drug policy in broad general terms, because we obviously cover gender, race, mm. I know not, I'm not going to be the best voice, and I'm completely humbled to the fact I'm going to mess up in this. Yeah. And that's okay, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's... I do understand that people are very, very frightened of fucking up. and Am I allowed to swear on this? Go for it. (laughs) Yes. All right. Break. I do understand that people are very frightened of fucking up and they have good reason for it because the internet is not kind when you fuck up. But it's also not the worst thing that you can possibly do. I mean, we have to make space for people to just be wrong and to learn because that's how you get better. And, you know, they're... comes a sort of calcification when you are so rigid and so frightened of messing up that you don't open yourself up to to diverse experiences and you don't try like trying is good honestly at the end of the day I've not seen anybody's life get worse because they tried to be a better person sometimes they make stupid mistakes along the way but people are better and better at understanding who's in good faith and who isn't like I've messed up so many times and sometimes it's been awful and sometimes people have misinterpreted what I've said and sometimes people have taken what I've said in the wrong way and sometimes I've just been called out in a way I felt was unfair and a bit harsh but at the end of the day I learned a lot from some of it and also say you know if I was called out for accidentally saying something racist that was a horrible experience for me but it wasn't as horrible as racism so, I just suck it up. Really, like being yeah, being called out because you've done something racist is not as bad as experiencing racism. I'm I'm assured. So, like,
1: you, you, there's another great line in the book. I'm just going to oh, be completely quoting your book. That uh, the only safe space from Twitter is in the shower, and I completely understand yeah, that. Yeah, it's true. Because as as we just discussed, social media can be a bit of a prism backlash which Mm -hmm. is a whole section of your book dedicated to backlash do you think that are we getting better or worse at that do you think that with diversity comes understanding or more intolerance
2: i think we're in this interesting interesting transitional moment in terms of how we communicate with each other online and there is there isn't an easy answer to is social media good or bad because look at all this look at all this me too stuff over the past week and a half for every day that i've regretted being on twitter and i've thought oh my god i need to lead this website it's completely doing my head in it's awful everybody's yelling at me all the time it's the same tools that are being used to massively open up the conversational around sexual harassment and do a kind of activism that has never really been seen before and Honestly I think we're just we're learning how to use these tools in a new way so I mean I I said this actually on Scooby's Pip's podcast but I'm trying to work on an essay at the moment which is kind of around how we how we form communities online and talking to a lot of people who are experts in it and basically I think the the place where we're at in terms of social media is a bit like the place we were at when we started to build cities Um, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine a few months ago. So when we started to move to cities as human beings, and we started to build these massive edifices that had never been seen before, millions of people living together, and it completely changed what it meant to be a human being and and to build a community with other human beings. But when we started out, we didn't really know how to city. Like, all this shit piled up in the street and people got ill and there was no transport and there was, you know, unbelievably high levels of crime and, you know, we had to back engineer all of that with solutions that we couldn't have thought of when we were all living in the countryside and that's kind of what's happening in the world of communication right now. You now, we've, we've built cities in terms of how we communicate online. We've built new ways of communicating and new architectures of human of human conversation but we haven't quite learned to deal with the shit and the stuff that makes us ill and the solutions are going to be i don't know what the solutions are going to be yet but they're not going to be the old solutions it's not going to be oh um you know let's just all go back to a time when we had face-to-face conversations and let's all gonna, let's let's all go back to a time when everything was a bit slower and calmer that's that's not going to happen we have to find something new
1: yeah, I mean, we completely rely on social media and what we do in drug policy because we wouldn't be doing this without yeah. it, and it is still a new dynamic, isn't it? We've still not got to grips with it, and I, I love that analogy that we're city building.
2: Yeah, and it's and it's not. I don't have a solution for it. I don't think anybody really does. I don't think there is one solution, but there are there are only very simplistic wrong narratives about what social media is and what it does. And particularly when it comes to um harassment and people being attacked online, there is this very simplistic um, very simplistic attitude of the internet is bad for women, which I hear a lot and I think one of the reasons one of the reasons that people are so wedded to this idea that the internet is a terrible place for women and you should just you know stay off it as much as possible is because the internet is incredibly powerful for women, and that is what allows us to do to share stories and to do activism in a new way, like this Me Too phenomenon. You know, that would not happen in the, uh, the analogue world. And one of the reasons women and people of colour and queer people get harassed so much online is in the same way it, it works in a little like street harassment. Is it, It's about shaming and threatening people, those people out of public space.
1: Do you think... it's it's obviously still in its evolutional process, social media. Do you think that it's going to get better, more more of a wild west or do you think we've reached a plateau now where how it is it's already shaped up, it's already the foundations are going to be existing?
2: I have no idea. Honestly, I really don't know what's going to happen from now. I know that the internet in five years is going to be different from what it's like today, obviously. It's funny that this, this phrase, the Wild West, keeps cropping up and um, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I always, since living out in on the west coast of the US, I've been thinking about it in a different way. The idea of the Wild West is like a lawless place, whereas actually what the the Wild West was, was a colonised space. It's not, like we think of the Wild West, particularly in, in Britain where we basically think of cowboys and uh, Native Americans as like made up fantasy characters that didn't really exist in real life um we think of it as this you know as this story about an empty land and people you know trying to you know build laws and civilization out there but i don't know whenever people use the wild west i'm like "Mm, maybe there is something hidden in that metaphor maybe actually there are there are native and digital users who are not paying attention to I don't know, I'm just kind of aware of language, maybe too much at the moment. (laughs) I don't know, I, I had an American friend come to stay with me the other day, and we were walking down the street in the town, and there were just like two shops with like the heads of, you know, Native American chiefs with headdresses like on the shop, you know, hippie shops. And she was like... What the hell is that? I'm, like, I'm sorry, we don't really understand that here. We don't really have indigenous people in the same way. We don't mean it badly. It's just you know we're learning when I was um little i um until I was about eight or nine years old, I thought there was a separate country called Native America because because I had Native American Barbie. That was the Barbie that I was allowed to have. And I knew that there was Spanish Barbie and Indian Barbie. And, and I had Native American Barbie. So I assumed that she came from Native America. And then I learned differently and it was very horrible.
1: And you, you hit a great point there about language. And yes. it's, it's something that we're really hot on in drug policy. You know, we, we still get a stigmatizing language of junkies and mm-hmm. uh, spice zombies is the new big thing.
2: Really? What are they?
1: I know. it's. Uh, is that like
2: Dune? <laughs> oh,
1: yes. See, so when Spice first came out, my first point of call was June because what Spice? Spice is the I'm not synth- cool anymore. S- the synthetic cannabinoid that has oh. swept the streets. If you believe the tabloids, it's still out there. It, the Psychoactive Substance Act, which you've written about uh, on the yeah, new yeah. statement, that was outlawed because of
2: Oh, for goodness' sake. Yeah,
1: so Spice Zombies is the is the new thing.
2: Spice Zombies, like which, Fremen. Just call them Fremen.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. See, I, I, my June knowledge is quite. Sparse sorry. now. It's been so long since I have only seen the film as well. I've not read the book, which is probably the film's a pretty s- good. Like, I'm sacrilege. sorry, the
2: film is pretty good. Like I know it's not Jarodowski's Dune, but that would have been a silly idea anyway. Because Has like, got
1: sting in it, I think it
2: does have sting in it. Which like being a, very naked.
1: Yes, I can remember that part now. Yeah, yeah it's it's kind part, of amazing.
2: But. Like we were, I was gonna, um, we were briefly at at uni gonna do uh, Dune the pantomime.
1: How is that going to work?
2: Come on with a giant pantomime worm. <laughs> like I really wanted to be like pantomime Paul Atreides, you know, in very, very tiny shorts.
1: See, now I'm trying to work out how spice you do a pantomime of life worm. Spice
2: must flow.
1: It's all no. there. Right, Christmas show. We're doing <laughs> <Yeah>. it here. Tune <laughs> so the musical.
2: Yeah, we're like ten people in a pantomime worm.
1: We'll get Pip involved in that. It'll be one well up for So
2: good. It, it could At be Pip. Mother Superior.
1: He looks like some kind of space emperor, I think. It looks like some Ming anyway. Where was I anyway? Spice zombies, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so language, really important to yeah. us. Um, and it's something that you, you completely focus on in the book of just how important language is. We're still using stigmatising language. We don't mm-hmm. even know it. Do it's, it's existing all around us.
2: It's, and when it comes to stu- things like drug policy, I imagine it's very, it's very changeable in terms of how it interacts with with the legal aspect. Because so what is like, are there legal terms like abuser or user that go in and out of, of we, fa- not fashion, but like legal meaning?
1: Yeah, kind of. Neve, we're going to speak to later, is going to be the best one to deal with this. All right. Um, so we'll kind of almost come back to that. But I think it just, there's basic rules again of just using humanizing language. So you're not a user, you're a consumer, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Neve would agree with that or... <laughs> Nigel, come on, behave yeah, yourself, so instead of users, we might say consumers, yeah, and instead of an addict, someone that suffers with dependency mm-hmm. um, so there's just there 's ways of just humanizing the language back to being. people
2: get very angry when you change language, and this is yeah, I, I write about this in the book a lot, the idea that as language as language changes, people who are wedded to old systems of thought um sort of cover that up by saying that they you know they just preferred the old words it's not the ideas they have a problem with they just don't like the new words and you know one of the one of the examples of that is you know the use of they or them as an alternative gender neutral pronoun to he or she but um and the use and the word cisgender when it comes to talking about people who are not transgender transgender being to cisgender as heterosexual is the homosexual and this is a huge thing right now people just don't want people want to say oh I'm not cisgender I'm normal and the rest of you are, are freaks and not normal but this is exactly the same conversation that people had 50 years ago around the word homosexual and the word heterosexual people got very upset that they were being described as heterosexual as straight because they didn't want to think of their own sexuality in relation to a different kind of sexuality you know the, the language we use shapes the shapes our political world and we have to allow that you know, allowing that to change is a form of social activism and i'm i'm just paraphrasing loads and loads of complex theory here in a way that is probably getting half of it wrong but and the same with with ms ms um in the idea that you know you don't have to if you're a female person instantly signal with the title in front of your name whether you're married or not married it seems like that should be a no-brainer but I remember when I was younger um no when I was very very small in like the late 80s early 90s uh, my mum explained to me why she was Ms. but all my friends mums were Misses. And that made a really massive impress- impression on me as a little girl. I still remember it. So, like, tiny, tiny little changes in languages are, are, are really, really important.
1: We're fairly similar ages, and I think we've probably experienced mm. many of the social changes that have, that have come with that. Because in my childhood, it still was fairly playground norm to use persecuting language. Of, oh, yeah. And do you think we are getting better at that now? Do you think? Or is it still there lurking? Well, I mean,
2: to, to find that out properly, we'd have to hang around a playground. And I just, that's not, that's frowned on, as I understand, like hanging around. Any volunteers? Yeah, maybe with a camera or a recording device trying to see what, like, I don't think that's, I don't think that would work well. But yeah, the, it is less common for kids to use the word gay. I think that's been a little bit more stamped on. Um, the young people I work with and talk to, or younger people, and they're like, early teens are they're much less homophobic and that 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 is one thing that's changing uh sexism and racism are not changing in the same way i think they're just it's it's shifting as demographics shift but not necessarily i don't know there's a lot of language that doesn't get paid attention to enough in schools because we just assume that anything kids do in school is normal and and for some reason character building Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And, um, Makes a lot of sense. Um, I totally need to hit upon social activism because mm-hmm. your book is just full of it. And it's oh, it, it genuinely inspiring some of the things that you said, such as, I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to frame this broad discussion up tonight about historical social movements is because I think personally we can learn a lot from the social movements That women have been involved in in the past, you know, the obvious ones like the suffragette movement, and which, and you said as well, like Nenny Bly, she was doing things way before the 60s that Mm -hmm. that the 60s claimed credit for. Are we forgetting those voices, you know, the shoulders of giants? Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. But there was a a huge amount of erasing the history of of women's social movements, but also telling lies about it as well. There is a huge, you know, not a movement, but women who are not. Uh, middle-class feminists or or suffragists of a certain age and generation get sort of written out of history women of color in the early feminist movement get written out of history as does the fact uh, that quite a lot of early suffragettes then went and joined the fascists not a lot of people did did everybody here know that yeah yeah i'm really sorry I don't like that fact either, and I wish it wasn't true. But, you know, not all of them, but quite a lot of British suffragettes who didn't call themselves suffragettes at the time, uh, yeah, became really interested in the black shirts. Um, For what reason, I'm not entirely sure. I want to go and do more historical research about that because it's not been covered enough. I think partly because enough people call us feminazis anyway, and it would kind of feed that that whole thing wrongly but I think somebody has to go back and ask those questions particularly when it comes to interrogating white feminism um a lot of early uh, a lot of early suffragists in the United States um Susan Anthony Border, I think it's her name um was very much um against uh against emancipation of slaves, and against full voting rights for people of colour, because, you know, she saw it as, you know, a battle, and some, I really hope I'm not, I've got the right person here, because it's late on on, on a Tuesday night, and, and I'm not maligning somebody very, very important who, but I really think this is the case, there was somebody important, an early suffrage leader anyway, who was really not on board with the early civil rights movement and saw it as a as in competition with the rights of white women and of course uh women of color being totally written out of this picture as well in in that process at the same time and that's like yeah people tell different stories to serve the history that is most important to them at the time and this reclaiming of the suffragettes as the the epitome of what feminism was historically and should be now really deserves interrogating in a different way. Because also, you know, it was never just about the vote. The vote was something that people focused on as a way to get people's, you know, to get... Uh, to get women to be seen as full citizens and to be and um, to be understood as part of as, as part of the the governed population but it was never only about the vote it was about contraception it was about reproductive choice women's work um all kinds of things that we forget now when we um, when we you know i was taught about the suffragettes in school i think for one day and you just your know, pictures of uh, women in silly hats m- have doing silly kind of protests with placards and, like, and, and the story is, and, and then they had the vote and then everything was fine and then in the 60s there was equal pay and that was a, there was some protests and then everything was fine and we tell a history of you know, we tell history as we want to interpret it leading to, always leading to a final page which is today, we don't want to tell a history that is incomplete basically
1: Are we lucky as well because we've got the perspective of history so for example we know how the fascist movement turned out so therefore we can be judgmental on it same with drug policy we know that the inception of it was awful and then it's had an awful legacy so therefore it makes sense on the on the face of it especially back then you know mm. outdoor drugs is going to protect the world and you know same with the fascist movement of it went a certain way but now we know how it turns out are we a little bit
2: i don't know lucky? you would, i would hope so but we've had quite a lot of history to look at before then that we didn't seem to learn from, so I don't... Uh, there seems to be a lot of willful misreading and rereading of history right now. Partic- I mean, particularly in Britain. You know, the one word that nobody uses ever is empire. And this completely stuns me. Like I've been travelling for the last six months or so, and everywhere that's not the UK that you go and... Have political conversations to people, they talk about the British Empire, uh, especially when you 're a British person in the room with them they, you know there are discussions about the legacy of empire and the idea and what that does to the psychology of a nation that is getting over the fact that it 's not very important anymore and it probably should never have been in the first place. we don 't have that conversation, and yet it is everywhere in what's hap- in, in the way we 're acting out on the world stage right now. oh. Was that not okay yeah, to say? Yeah, there's a sign. Like, <laughs> the lights just Who have we angered? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm just stunned at the fact that this conversation is somehow missing, and deliberately missing. Um, Shashi Tharoor's book, What the British Did to India, um, really hammers home the point that British schoolchildren and university students, well, schoolchildren in particular, we often don't lo- learn a line of colonial history. Um, I did history right up to 18, and I learned a little bit about the process of decolonization, but I didn't learn anything about the history of the East India Company, the British Empire in its heyday, and I think that's a deliberate choice. I did Henry VIII for four years. Nobody needs to know that much about Henry VIII unless they're a Henry VIII scholar or going to write a terrible historical movie. You know, it's, but I feel like I really could have, done with knowing more about the british empire and i'm now having to reteach myself i'm 30 years old i should know this
1: yeah completely agree with that and Going back to the theme that I was saying about the perspective of being on the right side of history mm. in quotation marks, I absolutely love the line. And as you can see, my notebook is a stormtrooper. Oh, my yeah. pen is a stormtrooper. And you, yeah, I know. I sorry, I shouldn't admit that, but I'm proud of it. Yeah. I go into Parliament with my stormtrooper notebook, and it's brilliant. And you say as well that sometimes you don't understand that you're part of the Empire and not the Rebel <gasps> yeah. Alliance.
2: Yeah. How cool is that line? Oh, thanks. Yeah, but look, it's one of the things I've learned and and I feel that the knowledge has been sharpened in me through several years of Twitter flame wars is that nobody thinks they're the bad guy. Nobody, even people who we all think are definitely the bad guys, they really think they're the good guys and they're hanging on to that knowledge with everything, they that understanding with everything they can. And sometimes just shouting at people that they're doing bad things doesn't doesn't make as much of a difference as quietly and calmly deconstructing and, you know, explaining to people why they're on the wrong side of history. It's really, um, I mean, that line came from a piece about sexism within like the nerd scene and people who despite being extremely powerful sometimes you know people in silicon valley who own and work for giant corporations and have a great deal of money and privilege and power still think that they are the underdogs because of the story they learned growing up about what guys like them were supposed to want and achieve and and because a lot of them were bullied at school well you know join the Bloody Q, I I was bullied at school. I don't get to think of myself, you know, I don't get to think of myself in a different way because of that. I don't think having that experience makes you, you know, the most oppressed person in the entire world. It's about reframing the stories that we tell about ourselves, um, basically. And I'm not like, I actually, I, I must I'm not like the world's biggest Star Wars person. I'm like more of a Trekkie. But I understand. I I, I'm might sorry. I'm sorry. Star Trek is about socialism. It's yeah. really important. We can talk about Star Trek if you want.
1: I'm, I'm up for it. Star Trek I, is gonna really important. I'm going to go with Star Wars, but Nigel's nodding over Star there. Star
2: Wars is just swords and sorcery in space. Come oh. on. It's great. I love swords and sorcery, but it's not like... It, it just happens to be... It's literally what it says in the tin. It's a story about a war in the, in the stars. Like that's, There's not really like a lot of technological... Innovation. Like It's barely science fiction. It's fantasy. That's great.
1: I totally wasn't expecting to go down this route. I must admit.
2: I spent all of my Saturday night playing D and D with a nine-year-old boy, so I'm totally in this in this in this headspace right now. If you want to go there, we can go.
1: I'm trying to work out a way we can get a Star Wars drug theme podcast. Someone needs to work on that with me. Nigel's raising his eyes again. I think <laughs> it's possible we can get there.
2: This general sci-fi drug policy podcast. Yeah, that sounds wonderful.
1: And I think I can kind of tenuously link this because you stipulate in the book and this is something that i completely agree with and i think most of the drug policy workers in the room would agree with is that we need to mobilize the arts you know mm-hmm. bands music film in any social cause especially drug policy or, or whatever it may be yeah. do you, how do you go about doing that i mean this podcast is constructed to do that we completely raft out on, on public figure names like yourself um, oh, a public figure! Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool! You got how many Twitter followers you got? Some. You got loads. I think we can we can base that. On, I'm sure you have got a Wikipedia as well. I
2: do have a Wikipedia, but it's a bit weird.
1: Anybody else got a Wikipedia in the room? Raise your hand. Have you? Yay! Wow, well, blimey, nice. Well, I think that deserves a round plus you down here. We could... <laughs> Brilliant.
2: I think I may have coined the phrase "internet nano celebrity," meaning that like, you still have to. You you sometimes get recognised on the bus, but you still have to take the bus. Yes, so like,
1: I, I totally understand yeah. that. Yeah, I get recognised around my hometown because I had a tenuous piece in my local paper about cannabis and the Oscar, the film award, and I still get attention for it now, and I still don't know why because it was it was it was such a marketing ploy that I I almost feel embarrassed to be that associated now it's become a running joke in my family of like oh, g- get your oscar out, polish it oh come on that,
2: uh, sounds, that sounds like a mom and dad
1: joke yeah and i've totally digressed to getting the fact that i was in the line for an oscar which i totally wasn't by the way
2: <laughs>
1: but so how do we mobilize the arts because it, it is really important we can we can lobby we can pl- you know engage in political terms all we want but unless we get those social revolutions going It means nothing, doesn't it?
2: I don't know what, like, what mobilising the arts looks like, because... Back in 2008, when the credit crisis hit, um, there was all this, all this great discussion about how, oh, you know, this new age of austerity would bring in a new age of artistic production and there would be the return of punk. And I mean, really, that, and all these articles were coming out from people who'd gone to university for free and, you know, they were writing them from their, you know, houses that they owned. And I was 21 at the time and like, right, that's, mm, you know, I'm, I, this, this doesn't sound plausible or also, and really, fuck off. Um, <laughs> but instead, instead, what has happened is, you know, people are finding new ways to create, but it's been much, much harder than it should have been over the past nine, ten years. Uh, there's a, a, an extraordinary essay about art and austerity, uh, written by Ellen Willis, who is um, one of the most important um, essayists. For me personally, although she's not very well known in the UK, about, you know, and, and she writes it in the 80s about the kind of contraction of the revolutionary spirit of the art world and talks about how much of it is about just basic lack of access. And she, and she opens it up by saying, oh, you know, when I moved to New York in the 60s, I could pay my rent for a couple of months by writing one article for The New Yorker. And I was like, oh, my God, that sounds... Dis-. But... But space, people underestimate physical space and basic security, and and the and how how that then produces. It's the bedrock of everything else. I really profoundly believe in finding new ways to provide artists and musicians and writers with ways to support themselves on a basic level, and that's what this government has been chipping away at for years and years and years. And I, I think it's it's so. I don't know, I find it very, very sad the way that that has been contracting in this country over the past decade and, and the ways in which it has not been contracting are in spite of, rather than because of, uh, of the way that this, the state policy has supported all of that.
1: Is social movements in, in the arts, do we get more of it when times are hard?
2: I don't... Look, I don't think so. I think social movements in the art ref- in the arts reflect what's going on in culture, and they inevitably do. Um, I don't. It depends how hard the times are, and how it impacts on people's ability to actually survive and make work that matters and matters to them. And, you know, over the past year, there has been the paralysis among a great many people I know who are artists, musicians, writers, over what to do about this rolling crisis that seems to be going on in the world. Um, A a very interesting thing seems to have happened whereby in November in particular, half the people who are freelance artists and writers I know, including me, just junked everything and said, right, you know, we're going to go and we're going to work for the revolution, we're going to completely upend our plans. And then after that, um, you know, they tried to do something new and it didn't really take, you know, because we were doing it in a rush, in a hurry, we hadn't thought it through. And now, six, nine months, a year later, people are sort of coming back to what they were doing before, but in a new way, Um, not normalizing what's going on in the world, but just thinking about it in a new and different way and using the kind of the sense of that chronic rather than acute crisis to make a different kind of work i've got a friend who's going back to the film she put aside i'm going back to a longer book project i put aside to do more journalism um somebody's finally bringing out the album she had put aside and they're different than the than the works and the projects that they were when they started out i don't know how much how relevant that is but that's definitely something i've noticed
1: do you get caught up in the activism that you are particular, I, I use the activism mm. lightly um or i don't mean it derogatory do you get too caught up in that and put yourself to the back burner
2: oh, i definitely put creative stuff on the back burner as much as, as as i feel all right doing you know i was meant to be writing a novel starting last november after i handed in the manuscript for this which i did on the on the fourth of november last year um and uh, I then had to pull it back and significantly change the introduction, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, I, it just didn't feel like writing a novel was very important. And maybe I was wrong about it. Look, I spend my entire life reading novels, but it just felt that, you know doing journalism was going to matter a tiny, tiny bit more. Not that anybody can, any one person can change the world with writing, but it just feel, felt like that was more of a contribution. And I know a lot of people who felt the same, particularly people who work in arts and felt that, well, you know, maybe I should just junk it all in and go and retrain as a doctor or a nurse, which is just a silly idea. You know, half the artists I know would be terrible nurses or doctors. Why do you want to do that? Keep making music. We still need music. But um, yeah, it's. I do put that stuff on the back burner, and I've learned to not as I've got a bit older. Yeah,
1: I, I think that the people that work in drug policy would be able to attest that sometimes you get so caught up in the issue mm-hmm. that you do neglect yourself and your your own projects and and you know family and things because you're so caught up on trying to make the social betterments.
2: Yeah, whatever it is that you care about more than your more than yourself and your kind of personal happiness in a way as a way of sucking sucking the energy out of you and i've um i think it's just very important to understand that self care in these in this kind of situation isn't optional actually if you stop looking after yourself on a basic level or if you don't do enough of it not only is that not grown up and and basically selfish because at the end of the day somebody else is gonna end up doing it for you it's also just that's part of the work as well in the way that laying out your tools and you know getting the measurements done is part of the work of building a house it's the, all it's that's the preparation work that goes into the actual work and the activism and you know activist is is a word I'm never sure whether or not to claim because you know, the writing I do is politically focused but it's been a long time since I've been an active organiser on a campaign and I feel that it implies that I I do a kind of work that, that I don't that I don't work hard at currently. It just doesn't seem fair to say. It so, almost
1: goes back to the language issue again because yeah. activist almost sounds amateur. It almost sounds Does like it?
2: No, no, I just I aspire to be an activist. Oh
1: you say Yeah, it's a yeah, positive.
2: yeah. I think it's a positive. I just don't I just feel a bit bad about you know I feel like I haven't really earned it recently. I'm just a writer. You know. are, you, are
1: you getting, or are you conscious of self-preservation of not giving yourself over too much to certain issues and and being reserved and keeping your creative juices back? And
2: oh my god, um, I try to be, but honestly, for me, like even somebody asking me that question, I feel like ah, oh, that feels a bit self-indulgent. You know I'm I'm from a family where you know you work hard you get up you produce your words you um you know you 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 treat it like a craft and I've you know I'm incredibly lucky to be able to get to do the work I do as well you know even you know just the fact that I'm able to pay my rent and my bills by writing about things I care about that's an astonishing piece of good fortune but within you know my particular personality understanding how lucky i am is sometimes an excuse for not taking a day off you know it's like think of all the it's not think of all the starving children in africa it's like think of all the 24 year old freelancers who don't get to do what you're doing you know don't nap you know go write write some more copy and then you can nap but yeah actually yesterday i'm I'm planning out the next book right now and um, my editor said to me yesterday so you know how about just like you know, just taking a week or so now that you can afford to do that, and you know just just thinking some deep thoughts and you know taking some walks and you know writing some ideas and you're doing know, like what you know it's you write an article every day, where's your five hundred words? where's your deadline? you know what's all this creative nonsense you know and yeah, but i might I might try to do that, but I'll feel very, very silly indeed
1: so um, just to kind of wrap up, uh Laurie what's your plans now with bitch doctrine are you is there any other regions and countries that you're going to be visiting
2: actually uh day after tomorrow i'm going to switzerland and luxembourg and and austria which but so i don't know if anybody knows this but i'm a kind of big deal in germany which is really odd and i've never understood how that happened or why but but apparently, yeah, it's like this is the third time I've gone back and done a tour of German-speaking countries this year. Like it, it's nuts. And I, it's like like the Hof, or you know, me and the Hof, basically. But apparently, like it's it's a real. I don't know. I really don't know why. And my experience of Germany is completely coloured by that. And also, I don't speak German. I did French at school. I can't even get arrested in France. Like it's um. Yeah, so that's my—that's what's going to happen next with with this book. I'm doing the second German tour for that. See, I've now and, got uh,
1: images of you and the Hoff on a panel discussion.
2: It this hasn't has... happened yet, but I'm not ruling it out. Do
1: you reckon we can reach out to the Hoff, get him on yeah. here? Yeah, maybe he listens
2: to this. You never know.
1: This, uh, I, yeah. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but um, but with this, um, and then there's also going to be um a second edition of this with a few more more essays in it and I'm, I'm going to kind of try and redo the introduction because basically the in- so if, if anybody is, is going to start reading it today um the introduction is kind of it's kind of weird because I try and like craft my stuff quite carefully I try and whenever whenever it gets a bit serious I try and be entertaining I try and crack jokes and the original introduction was like that, but unfortunately, the original introduction assumed that this book would come out during a Hillary Clinton presidency, and um, and so you know I, I yanked it back, begged my editor for to give me a f- another you know few days to rewrite it, and so the, the introduction was written basically with a thousand yard stare, you know, as the election results were still coming in, just like oh my god, everything is bad, the whole world is falling apart. So yeah, it's not, it's a bit it's not too much fun it reads like some it reads like it was written by somebody who's having a panic attack basically which is its own kind of fun but like so I might try and calm that down a bit and maybe find a a couple of places to crack some jokes and there have been more essays come out that I'll put in as well so yeah.
1: Well, make sure you do buy it, cause it's right there on the corner over here.
2: Yeah, I'm not allowed to sign anyone else's books. Like, Please do buy books, Like, because this is a bookshop. and that. Yeah, we, like, got, we got
1: Johans behind us. We're going to do a, a group sign-in of Johans chasing the screen for auction. He I'm sure you wouldn't
2: yet. mind if I signed that.
1: Oh, we should totally do that.
2: Yeah, like, I didn't write this, but please enjoy but it. But it. it's
1: great. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's
2: pretty good, actually, yeah.
1: So if it's all right, we're going to do a quick stop over there with Tristan. Actually, before I do that, I've cocked this all up. Can we... I'm going to do a quick outro for Laurie because these are going to be separate episodes, you see. I'm going to record, this one's going to go out on its own, and then we're going to do the the one that's going to follow after that, you see. So that's why. Right, so on that note, and now I've cocked it all up. So thank you so much, Laurie, for Uh, the. See, I feel so like a game show host when I do that. I feel like Jim Bowen or something. All right. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Joe, over there. All right, thank you so much, Laurie, for joining. This isn't going to flow now, is it? Basically, all right, people listening to the podcast, this is going to go unedited, sod it. So, thank you so, thank you so much, Laurie, for joining us. Give her a round of applause.
2: Thank you. Thank you. We got
1: there. See, I'm such a class act, and I'm such a pro. So there we go. Thank you so much again for listening. As ever, I need to do my uh, my thank yous. Thank you to Tristan, the producer on that one, because uh, he filled in for Nicky because Nicky broke his leg. Yeah, so we uh, we had a quick sub, and uh, Tristan got in for us. And uh, Tristan's now our associate producer for the podcast. And thank you so much. I'm not going to thank Nicky because he he is going to be post production editing this. But nah, sod him. He uh, he broke his leg and let us down. So, um, but nah, th- thanks, Nicky. Also, thank you to my name is Ad for the artwork. Thank you to all the listeners that you guys, what you do, all the people that reviewed and just helping us out. It's just fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you, John, our social media guy, for all he does as well. And Screwbus Pip, of course, thank you for all he does the support and make sure you listen to all the distraction pieces network. So choose like not George Jim Smallman, say Right to drugs for Susie Gage and of course Christian Stewart and Harcourt listening. And also the Dream Factory. Please go and listen to the Dream Factory because John, who does the distraction pieces, network social media, and that's his podcast, and it's just so funny. I'm hopefully going on that soon, um, and I can't wait. So next time, as I said, we'll find out if we got a British Podcast Award or not, which we're not getting our hopes up, but well, fingers crossed. So until next time, thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye. Behind your